Hey, turn with me to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. It's about it's over three-quarters of the way through your Bible. It's past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. You turn through all those books, you'll find Philippians. It's Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And the reason that we're studying Philippians is because we want to see how this good news about Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, what that means for us, how that transforms us, how that changes us. We live in a a world that is consumed by bad news. You might even say we're not just consumed with it, we're enamored with it. We almost love to hear it, right? It's kind of like watching a train wreck. We're just drawn to it. And what that does to us, is the more we feast on that, the more we listen to bad news in whatever form it may be, whatever media outlet you get it from, is it makes us fearful people. It makes us angry people. It makes us cynical people. And it makes us a divided people. And Paul is offering something altogether different. He's offering this thing called gospel, good news. And as we believe the good news about Jesus, and as we feast on Jesus, we go from being fearful and angry to being joyful. We go from being cynical to being hopeful. And we go from being divided to being united. That's what happens when you believe the good news, when you're transformed by the message about Jesus. And so, Neil last week took us through Paul's prayer. This week, Paul begins the main section of his letter to his friends at Philippi by talking about his own example. You see, they had heard lots of things about Paul. This was a church that Paul started, but they hadn't seen him in a while. They'd heard lots of bad reports about Paul, and so they send a man named Epaphroditus to check on him. And Paul is giving Epaphroditus this letter to send back to them. And here's what he says, starting in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me In my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be 
magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. Our God and our King, we would make the first song that we sang, really any of the songs that we sang, but the first one in particular, our prayers, we come to your word, that you would make the mind of Christ our minds, that you would help us to understand what Paul's telling us about himself and what we can glean from that. Oh Lord, would you give us Paul's vision and Paul's view. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says some pretty shocking, um, maybe a better word would be unbelievable things in this passage we just read. Uh, At least to me, they're pretty unbelievable because what it looks like is he's in prison. He's under, he's under house arrest to be technical, um, but he's in chains and He's got people who are preaching the same message he's preaching, but they're doing it to harm him, to cause him more grief. Not only that, but as we find out later on in the letter, he's writing to his friends in Philippi who are also undergoing some persecution and some conflict. And so it looks pretty grim. And yet Paul says things like, what then? Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Who talks like that? How does that happen? There's a couple of areas where Paul gives us a right sense of perspective. And it all can be summarized in this way. When Jesus is your chief love, and his gospel, his good news, your driving aim then all of life is put in right perspective. Isn't so much of living about our perspective on the matter? And oftentimes we have a view. In fact, this is probably the main contributor to conflict. Right? When you are in conflict with another person, most of it, I would guess, has to do with what you think they're thinking. When in fact, they may not be thinking that at all. But it is your perspective, your perception, no matter how wrong it may be, that is brewing up a storm in your own heart. And so it matters that we have a right perspective. It matters that we have a good perspective and not a bad one. And Paul shows us what it is to have a good perspective. First, he talks about the gospel and suffering. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what has happened to me, Let's just, let me summarize for you Paul's life. You can read about this at large in the book of Acts, but let me just kind of give you an idea. He was converted. He spent a few years training, and then 
he began going around the Roman Empire planting churches. In the course of doing that, he was stoned and left for dead. And just so we can be graphic about it, that means that people got big, heavy rocks and threw them at him in order to kill him. A mob of people hurling rocks at you to crush you and kill you. That happened to Paul. He passed out, almost dead, and God revived him. He kept going. He was beaten multiple times, almost torn apart by angry mobs a few times. And after a few journeys around the Roman Empire like that, he ends up in Jerusalem where he meets his last angry mob. You see, the, some of the Jews in Jerusalem, Paul himself was a Jew and he was preaching a Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and yet... Most of the Jews did not like the message about Jesus. They did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. And so when Paul got to Jerusalem, they whipped up a mob that almost killed Paul. The Roman soldiers had to take them away. They were going to turn him back over to the Jewish authorities when Paul appealed to Caesar. Paul was a Roman citizen, and so he had the right to appeal to Caesar. And so that began a months-long ordeal where Paul is imprisoned under various Roman governors, right? So maybe almost worse than being beaten, he now has to put up with government bureaucracy, right? So, which is kind of like being beating, being beaten. Um, so Paul goes through this months-long ordeal. He finally gets on a boat to go to Rome. That boat shipwrecks. And in the course of that, he gets bitten by a poisonous snake, right? There is nothing about this man's life that you would say, hey, I want that. That's good, Right? And there's everything about this man's life that says, you really should stop. You really should just give up. This is clearly not going your way. But Paul gets to Rome. He's under house arrest in Rome, which is where he writes this letter uh, to the Philippians from. And what he says to them is, all this has served to advance the gospel. Is that the first thing you would say? Looking back over that kind of life, is that the the first thing you would say? Guys, I want you to know that God is at work. No, what I would be prone to say is that clearly God is against me. Because all of these things keep happening. I keep suffering in these various ways. And yet Paul looks at his life, but he also looks at the fruit of his message and he says, God is at work. The gospel is progressing. So if I'm going to compare... Or contrast me to Paul, and maybe this would be helpful for you, right? I'm going to say, oh man, look at my, look at my suffering. Look at, look at my chains. Look at how they chafe. Look at how, it, look at how my ankle bleeds. Look at the scars on my back. How awful, or how courageous. But Paul doesn't do that. In fact, oddly enough, Paul doesn't point to himself at all. He says, look at my life. Look at my chains. Look at the gospel going forward. Paul doesn't even mention his own pain. He just mentions how things are progressing. How does he know? It gives us two indications that the gospel is advancing He says, first, all of the guards and all the other people associated with him, he says, all of the imperial guard, these are Caesar's crack troops, right? They were were there apparently to keep those who had appealed to Caesar uh, under protection. 
He says, the, the entire imperial guard and all the rest know why I'm here. They've heard that I'm here for Christ. So people are hearing about Jesus. People who've never heard about Jesus are hearing about Jesus. That's Mark 1. Mark 2, he says, all of the brothers who are here, the, the other Christians who are here, they see me in chains and they are bolder to speak about Jesus. So not only are new people hearing about Jesus, but people who've already believed in Jesus are getting more mature. They're growing bolder. They want to speak about Jesus too, which leads to more new people hearing about Jesus. Those are the twin sisters of discipleship, by the way. Evangelism and growth. New people are hearing about Jesus, and those who believe on Jesus are being built up. That's how Paul knows the gospel's advancing, the gospel's progressing. And the whole point is this. Paul can rejoice because even though he is in chains, the gospel is not chained. Better yet, because he is in chains, the gospel is unchained. Isn't that crazy? I mean, we would look at this and we would say, this man's ministry, I mean, Paul, Paul must have been an, an incredibly gifted man, a very smart man, a very wise man. He wrote most of the New Testament, and yet here he is confined to a house, chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We would think, oh, what a failure, what a loss. And Paul says, God is using precisely this to advance the gospel. God looks at that circumstance, God looks at that situation and says, now that I can work with. We turn it upside down. We think, man, we just need to get it all right. We need to put the right people in the right places, the right gifts over here, and make sure that so-and-so is out in front and all this is happening, and we can, we can orchestrate a good strategy to reach the city, you know. And Paul takes his leading man puts him in prison, chains him to a guard, and says, all right, now, let's, let's let the gospel loose. That's what makes Paul happy. That's how God works. I wonder, what would it look like for you to have that perspective? How do you get there? We're going to find out in just a second. So, Paul is chained. The gospel is not. So, that's the gospel and suffering. What about the gospel and division? Even though the gospel is progressing, even though it is advancing, all is not well for the church in Rome. There seem to be two parties, right? Paul says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And so there are those who are emboldened by Paul's change, which is crazy in and of itself. For some reason, there are these people in the church who look at Paul being imprisoned and they say, man, I can do that. Usually, right, again, we turn it upside down. If I see somebody who's getting beaten for doing something, my default mode is, okay, don't do that. But for whatever reason, these people are motivated. When they see Paul in chains, they say, all right, maybe, maybe their thought is, okay, well, Paul's been sidelined, so it's my turn. I'll get out there. I'll preach the gospel. And we're not talking about ministers and elders. We're talking, he, he just calls them brothers, right? The other people in the church, normal Everyday people, not Paul. God is using them to push the gospel into the city of Rome, the center of the world at this time. All right? But there's another party. There's another group. And they preach Christ from envy and rivalry. It's really interesting. 
They're preaching Christ, so their message is right, but their motive is wrong. We don't really know a whole lot about why they're doing what they're doing or how they're doing it. They're preaching a right message with a wrong motive. Their motive is to actually inflict pain on Paul. They want to make his imprisonment worse. And here's the shocking thing. Paul says, all right, that works too. Right? Literally, he says, um, verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This guy's crazy. That doesn't make any sense to me. There are people who are actively maligning Paul. They are using the gospel to hurt Paul, and what he says is, hey, Christ is proclaimed. Now, this is interesting because there are other places in the New Testament When somebody gets the message wrong, when somebody preaches something other than Jesus, when somebody preaches a false gospel, Paul has no patience for that. He goes after those people. He bears down hard on them. So it's interesting right here, these people have the message right. They're just doing it for the wrong reasons. And Paul doesn't really get all worked up about that. He knows their motive is wrong. But he doesn't address it. It's almost as if he just leaves it to God to sort that out. It's almost as if he's saying, look, the message is right. People are hearing about Jesus and are being saved. I'm okay with that. I'll let God sort out their motives later. I don't have to deal with that. And so Paul's love for the gospel trumps his desire to defend himself. He doesn't even do it. He doesn't bring himself into the equation. He just says, I rejoice because Christ is proclaimed. How in the world do you get there? And that's where we come to the last section, the gospel and motivation. Paul says at the end of verse 18, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my Deliverance. Deliverance is what the ESV says. It's the Bible I'm reading from. Your translation may say differently, but the word is actually salvation. Paul's, Paul's not talking about getting out of prison, at least not in the fullest sense of the word. Paul says, all of this, the reason that I can be confident, the reason that I can feel this way and think this way and talk this way is because I am confident this is working for my salvation. Now, we need to talk about that word salvation because we're in the deep south, and if you've grown up even like next door to a church or had church-going friends, you've heard the word salvation or saved so many times, we don't even know what it means. So let's talk about salvation. The Bible means it in three, or talks about it in three ways, okay? The first is the common way that we're used to. When we hear, hey, so-and-so got saved. That means, right, past tense, there was a moment at which that person came to know Christ and they have been rescued from their sin. That's why I prefer the word rescue to saved because saved has kind of lost its meaning. But that's past tense. That's the, what we're, that's the way we're used to. That's not the only way the rest of the Bible talks about it. In fact, that's just the beginning, right? There's two more tenses to salvation. 
There's the current present tense, and we'll see this later in Philippians where he says, work out your salvation. This is what's going on right now. If you are a Christian, not only have you been saved, but you are in the process of being saved. And what this looks like is the Holy Spirit. This is what Zach was talking about in our confession of sin and prayer time, where the Holy Spirit is coming in and he's rooting out those different idolatries in your heart. That's what it looks like in the present, being saved. But that's not the whole story either. There's a final future tense sense when we will be saved. When we when when the work that God began, Philippians 1 6, where Paul says, I am confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We will be saved. So the past tense, what we're common, what we're what we're used to, that's just the starting line. We're all heading to the finish line. Paul says, I'm confident I'm going to get there. In fact, that God is using all of these adverse circumstances, all of these wagging mouths, all of these enemies. He's using this for my salvation. Usually when we suffer or when something bad happens to us, and this is not altogether untrue, but I think sometimes it's very unhelpful. We'll say, well, everything happens for a reason. Or, you know, God, God's doing something. But do you see, that, that's almost kind of just a shrug, like a, like a hapless, I don't know, fatalistic sort of, I don't know what's going to happen. God's going to do it. That's not Paul, right? When we say it, we usually, we usually mean, I don't know what God's up to. But, a man, I hope it's something good because this stinks. You know what Paul says? I know what it is. He's working on my salvation. He's using these things to make me more like Jesus. So whether it's chains or enemies or your prayers, I am being saved. And I will be saved. It's interesting, too, that Paul says, through your prayers and the work of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, Paul is no lone ranger. Paul's not out there on the front all by himself, him and God, taking the world for Christ. He says, I need your prayers. If I'm going to make it, I need you to pray that the Spirit will work in me. Our prayers for one another matter. Eternally they matter. That's how important your prayers are. I think that's why we don't pray this way, because that's a little bit too much burden. I would rather just pray that somebody's broken leg get healed, and if not, eh. But Paul, Paul makes it sound as if, if you don't pray, then I'm in jeopardy, spiritual jeopardy. Pray that the Spirit will help me. Pray. And I'm confident that I will be Saved, that I will be rescued. Verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored. That's the ESV word. The word is magnified in my body. Get the, get the picture of that. Paul saying that his main 
driving ambition, what he wants more than anything else and what influences the way that he sees his suffering, what influences the way that he sees his enemies and the divisions in the church is that Christ be made large in him, in his body. And what does he say? Whether by life or by death. It doesn't matter. Are you there? Can you, can you say that? I don't know. If I live, if I die, I just want Christ to be made large. I want Christ to be magnified in me. That's what drives Paul. I mean, he's, almost, he's, he's confused right here. He's, he's certain of his salvation, but he's, he's uncertain as to how it best plays out. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How about that? Can you say to die? To close my eyes in death is far better. That's what Paul says. Because if I die, I gain Christ. The ultimate good. That's far better for me. But if I live, I've got a lot of fruitful work to do. And that's far better for you. Paul is so captivated by Jesus Christ. Shockingly enough that his, his number one desire, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. I want to be executed. I want to move on. I want to see the one who has ransomed me and made me his own and be like him. I want to see him face to face. That's Paul's desire. Is it your desire? But then, Paul is so captivated by Christ and so driven by Christ's mission that he is willing to say, but I'll pass on that if it's better for you. I'll pass on that if it means I can help you. If I can stay and come to you and encourage you in the faith and encourage your joy and encourage you to glory in Christ Jesus more. See, that's what it is. Paul settles on staying as if he had a choice in the matter. Paul settles on staying because he wants them, he realizes that there are more people who do not know Christ like he knows Christ. And so he wants to stay and do more work so that more people will have the view and vision of Christ that he has, so that more people will have the perspective that he has. He longs to be with Jesus, but even more than that, he longs that other people will know Jesus like he does. That is what fires Paul. His heart and mind are so captured by Jesus that it gives him this amazing perspective of grace fellowship that we would treasure Christ like this. That we would be a people so enamored with Jesus that we would look at the possibility of our deaths and, and say, Gain. And then that we would look instead at the world around us and say, fruitful work. 
And that we would look at the suffering that comes into our lives, whether brought on by others or just out of the nature of living in a fallen world. But that we would look at our losses and our crosses and say, what then? Only that Christ is proclaimed. Oh, that we would have such a, such a mind and heart captured and enraptured by Christ. The Chronicles of Narnia uh, is a series of books written by C.S. Lewis, good stories. There's a character uh, in those books, and his name is Reepicheep. And Reepicheep is a talking mouse. Talking mice in Narnia are bigger than your average mouse. He's probably about that tall. And Reepicheep leads the talking mice of Narnia. He's the boss, and he is a very valiant warrior, and he is very proud. And what he is proud most of is his tail, his beautiful tail. But he loses his tail in a battle. And so when he comes to meet Aslan, the lion, who is Jesus in those books, when he meets Aslan at the end of the battle, he's ashamed because he's lost his glory. He's lost his tail. And Aslan gives him a new tail, a new glory. And Reepicheep, for the rest of his life, is captivated by Aslan and can think of nothing better than seeing Aslan again. And so the next time we see him is in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The characters are embarking on a journey to the east. Uh, They're in this ship called the Dawn Treader. And what they are looking for, well, they're looking for adventure. They're looking to explore. They're looking for some lost kings. But Reepicheep tells King Caspian, before they get on the boat, or as they get on the boat, he tells them that he's not coming back. Because in the east, the far east, at the end of the world, is Aslan's country. And Reepicheep has no desire to go back to Narnia when he can go on to Aslan. And this is what he says. My own plans are made. While I can, I sail east. In the dawn treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the world into some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. Are you driven to pursue Jesus like that? It changes you forever. Friend, we are driven by so many fruitless things. We cast our hopes on so many, so many sinking sands. And we find ourselves frustrated and discouraged and angry. Listen to Ripachi. Listen to Paul. Plant the flag on Jesus and pursue him with your whole heart. He is rock solid and he will not disappoint. Let's pray. Father, we ask just that. We pray that something of Paul's ambition, something of Paul's heart and mind would be ours. God, we acknowledge that that's not something we can do. You 
did it for Paul. God, we pray that you would do it for us, that you would draw us along. Oh, that our lives would be rooted and driven by your life. That the gospel, that sweet message of salvation, would not just cause us to renounce our sins in the past and recognize that we are forgiven, but that it would drive us to live fearlessly, to look at our enemies, to look at our sufferings, and say, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Oh God, would you do that? We pray it in Jesus' name.